News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, we are taking a look at Canadians and donations made to charities. And when we take a look at the percentage of tax filers, it appears that number is the lowest it's been in a couple of decades. Joining us to talk more about this is Jake Fuss, who's an Associate Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute. Jake, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I know that uh, you look at the generosity and do the generosity index every year. So lowest point in 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit more about these numbers? Yeah, like you said, every holiday season, we track the generosity of Canadians. And in this year's study, we found that the share of income donated by Canadians to charities has reached the lowest point since the year 2000. And we've also noticed that the percentage of tax filers donating is generally declining as well. This is obviously bad news for the most vulnerable in our society who rely on donations for essential things like food and shelter in particular. And I'm guessing you don't look or the numbers don't go into why the the generosity or why the donations are hitting this low point. I mean, we can probably think of reasons, uh, high cost of living, inflation and such. But what does this tell you then also when we look at kind of the comparison BC and how BC compares to other provinces? Yeah, so we have seen a marked decline in the generosity of British Columbians over the last decade or so. Um, so the share of income donated in the province has dropped more than 9% since 2000 and 2010. And the percentage of tax filers donating to charity has actually declined by about 20% over that same time period over the last decade, too. Um, so British Columbia is generally around the middle of the pack when it comes to Canadian provinces, when we're looking at percentage of tax filers making donations. Um, but we are seeing substantial declines um, in both the share of income donated and the percentage of tax filers making these donations over the last 10 years in particular. Hmm. What province then is, is the most generous still? Yeah, so Manitoba places first overall among Canadian provinces on our index. Um, this is a consistent trend that we've seen for quite some time. Um, they donate both the highest percentage of their income and have the highest proportion of tax taxpayers um, donating to charities. Um, In contrast, if we look at uh, Quebec and some of the Atlantic provinces, um, we see that they are typically uh, less generous than some of the other Canadian provinces on the index. Um, So Quebec, for instance, has donated the lowest share of income to charity among all provinces. Um, But but really, overall, we're observing that, you know, all provinces are experiencing substantial declines in their level of generosity over the last 10 years in particular. Hmm. And do you think, is it a pretty clear picture when we look at this or when you look at this based on tax filings in that I know it doesn't then count things like when you see a Salvation Army kettle or when you're maybe uh, donating your time or money to places that aren't uh, listed as official charities. Does it kind of, do you get a sense that there might be donations being made elsewhere that aren't that aren't obviously caught in these numbers that maybe the generosity is a little bit more than what we're seeing? That's right. Yeah. So our study only tracks donations that are claimed on a person's tax returns in Canada. Um, so the donations have to be given to registered charities and claimed on their tax return in order to be analyzed in our study. Um, but, you know, even if we look at, you know, generosity beyond monetary donations, um, you know, there are some recent data that examine volunteer rates, and we have also seen a bit of a decline in that area as well. Um, so between 2004 and 2017, there was some data showing that average annual volunteer hours per person were declining, and the percentage of the population that was volunteering had dropped as well. 
Um, so there are some some concerning trends in terms of volunteering as well. Um, so it's not just um, things that we're seeing on the tax returns that were declining as well. And like you said, too, these are charities that uh, I know we we hear about them more at this time of year and certainly more uh, attention is paid to that to get those donations. But we also know these charities depend on those year round and and hope to get kind of their their finances and the bulk of their donations during the month of December. Yeah, well, the rapid decline in charitable giving over the last two decades in Canada does mean that charities are going to be increasingly strapped for resources and face more financial obstacles. Um, so, you know, we're certainly hopeful that this holiday season, these troubling trends are going to turn around um, because so many vulnerable Canadians rely on these donations for essential things like, you know, just putting a roof over their head or having food on the table. So it's certainly important. And we, we hope that, you know, these charitable donations um, trend in the right direction this holiday season. And when we look at the the decrease or the decline this year, are you able to to show, is it when you talk about the 20 years and you mentioned this, how it's gone down, has there been a bigger drop this year, say, or or with the most most recent uh, tax filing information? Did you see a big decline or has it been more of a gradual decline over the years? So it has been a a gradual decline, I'd say, particularly since the 2008 recession that we've seen um, in both the drops in the percentage of tax filers making donations as well as the share of income donated. Um, Now, this data does include the first year of the pandemic in 2020, and we did see, you know, a bit of a market drop in terms of the share of income that was donated to Canadians. Uh, But like I said, you know, these these trends were really happening even before the pandemic began. Um, It was probably just exacerbated by the pandemic as well. Because um, we've really seen, you know, that these trends um, consistently happen now for well over 10 years now, um, where we're seeing this drop in, in generosity among Canadians. Right. And uh, interesting, too, when you look at, like you said, the average uh, based on income and, wh- and how people give. Does it look as well at other countries or is this basically or is this focusing more uh, all within Canada? Um, so we also do look at some data in the United States as well. Um, so we do know that there are some differences between Canada and the United States. Um, the United States typically um, donates a higher percentage of their income to charities on their tax returns than, than Canadians do. Um, so if we look at past data from 2018 or 2019 in particular, um, we see that uh, most American jurisdictions typically donate about two or three times the amount that Canadians do um, in terms of a share of income. Um, and that's kind of something that we've seen for quite some time now, too. Um, so there are some some interesting differences between the two countries on measures like charitable donations. Well, it is very interesting, and especially looking at it this time of year. Jake Fuss, thank you so much for joining us and for walking us through those numbers. Thanks very much for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, the BC Office of the Seniors Advocate has released the 2022 Monitoring Seniors Report, and it takes a look at the percentage of seniors living in BC and how much that has jumped. There are also some other key findings, and joining us to talk more about them is Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. Talk a little bit, if you can, about the, the numbers first and the percentage of seniors living in BC has gone up quite a bit. What does this report show? Well, it shows that what is happening is what we are predicting is going to happen, which is the population is growing. So the number of seniors is increasing as well as everybody else. But the proportion of the population 
that's 65 and older is also increasing. And that's what we really have to look at because that's telling us that we're having more people over the age of 65 relative to the population under 65. And that's important because as we get older, we need supports and services and that costs money. And also those supports and services need to be delivered by the working age population. And relatively speaking, that's not growing as the, at the same rate that the seniors population is. But the other thing that is interesting to note when you look at our seniors population, so now it's 20%, one out of five British Columbians are over the age of 65. But over half of those, almost 60%, Jill, are younger than 75. And that's, you're, you're quite healthy. So the, the majority of our seniors in BC today are very healthy. Um, and, and that's telling us that the, while we're experiencing pressures in our healthcare system, we've not yet begun to experience the kinds of pressures that are coming our way as that age cohort we colloquial refer to as the boomers um, begins to experience uh, uh, issues with their health. We generally see that happening as we get into our 80s. Which would is kind of alarming when you think about it, given the stresses that are currently on the system. If we've not yet reached that that point where we're going to see, like you said, a lot more need and a lot more use of various parts of healthcare. Yes, and you see it. So, for example, we'll take emergency visits or hospitalizations. So the number of emergency visits are up, and hospitalizations are up. Yes, but the rate. Of, a, of visits to the emergency par- department are actually down per thousand of people at, over the age of 65. That's again reflecting this younger, healthier seniors population is not uh, causing the kinds of pressures that, that they, they will in the future. And when you look at that as well and your findings when it comes to visits to the hospital, I know the the number it shows a decline in visits to to hospital. But does it show if that's because, like you said, we're seeing more seniors but more in the younger age group? Or is it possible that seniors aren't going perhaps when they need to or when they should be going? Well, the latter, the, this, the latter statement about not going when they need to, we certainly saw that, Jill, uh, in uh, 2020, in the first year of the pandemic, because we saw in the year after the pandemic the rebound effect. But most of our data now, because this is our, our eighth uh, report that we've issued, most of our data shows a five-year pattern. And so that's what we're looking at. And I want to clarify that the the number of visits has gone up. The rate, the number of visits as a proportion of the population has gone down. That's where, as I say, we need to be careful because what we're seeing in terms of increases is not being driven yet by the aging boomer population. That is still to come. And that's an important thing for us to remember that as stressed as our system is today, those stresses the, the, the sort of the real impact of the aging population is about six years away from beginning when we look at the, at the, at the boomer population. Uh, one of the findings as well, uh, taking a look at uh, long-term care beds, and I know it said uh, that there's actually been a decline. Is it just uh, the, the rate of publicly funded long-term care beds per thousand of population of 75 plus has fallen 12 percent. What, what does that tell us then about long-term care beds or what should we be looking at there, do you think? 
Well, it's part of a, of a continuum of a system, Jill. So it starts with our home care supports uh, and keeping people at home are, are not keeping up with uh, the demand and with the needs of the aging population. And so people are, are turning to long-term care and the data continue to support some are turning to long-term care when they really could be uh, managed in an assisted living setting or at home with more support. So we need to get that piece fixed. The other thing it reminds us of, and this is sort of a constant theme and why I talk a lot about the rate and look at five-year patterns, is that when we are spending more money, and, and we are definitely spending more money on seniors' care, um, that is not keeping up with the demand because the demand is going to increase and is increasing as the population grows. So we've increased the number of beds over the last five years by something like 2.5%, except the demand for those beds, because the population that needs them is growing by more than what we are increasing the number by. The rate, the available beds is shrinking. And then further compounding that, is the average length of time a person is staying in long-term care has been increasing. So the number of beds that become available each year is less than it was five years ago because five years ago, people stayed in that bed for a shorter period of time. And so there was more turnover. So we've got sort of all these compounding effects that are demonstrating more people are waiting and they're waiting longer for access to a long-term care bed than they were five years ago. And and one other uh, number that kind of jumped out at me as well, the wait list for seniors subsidized housing has increased 50%, which seems like a lot. It has. And I talked about this a bit in a previous report we did around incomes. But um, the the 20% of seniors in the province who are renters, so that is just about uh, 200,000 plus people, Um, they've got some real significant challenges. So we've highlighted again the inadequacy of the Shelter Aid for Elderly Renters program um, and also senior subsidized housing, where in the last five years, the number of seniors waiting for a subsidized housing unit has increased by 50%. So we're putting more people in each year, but to put it in perspective, we're putting less than 9% of the people waiting each year are getting a unit and the number of people waiting uh, is growing each year. And so, uh, you know, these, these are, these are, these are significant challenges and the government to be fair is faced with rising costs just to stay where we are uh, because of inflation. And then on top of that rising demand. So we have to pay more for the same services and supports and we need more services and supports. And that's going to add up to quite a significant uh, challenge uh, for the government, uh, which at the end of the day is all of us um, in the years ahead. All right. Very interesting findings uh, in this uh, latest report. Isabel McKenzie, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Jill. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions has announced that the minimum qualifying rate for uninsured mortgages, commonly known to home buyers and refinancers as the stress test, is not going to change from its current level, even though there have been many calls to do just that. So what does this mean for people with mortgages or perhaps who are planning on getting a mortgage in the near future? Sharon Davis is a mortgage planner at Blue Tree Mortgages West, and she joins us on the line now. Sharon, and thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks, Jill, for having me. Well, there were calls for a change. We know it's not going to change. What do you think this means for, again, people with mortgages or, or looking to get into the market? Well, we really think that it just means that um, people in Canada have been protected from uh, the stress test uh, with mortgage rates rising. And we have seen uh, and it's proven to insulate uh, buyers and borrowers from the rise in rates. So I think it's actually not a, a bad move that they're considering to keep the stress test because it is helping Canadians as rates are rising to manage their household income. Will it make it, though, very difficult when we look at the higher rates and adding that 2% to where people need to qualify? It's absolutely making it more difficult, and especially with the high price rates prices of uh, property, especially in British Columbia and uh, Ontario, especially the GTA, it makes it very cost prohibitive to to buy a home. And when you you talk about protecting people, and and that's what the goal of this and what this does, but is there really that big of a problem, even with the high prices and the rates? It's not as though we see a ton of foreclosures, is there, is it? Well, we haven't seen foreclosures rise terribly at the moment, but I do believe that it's, it's there's the writing's on the wall. It's probably on the horizon. And we are speaking to many, many clients uh, today about uh, the increased cost of borrowing um, and looking at their mortgages and their finances as a whole in order to help them through this period of time. Uh, the one, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, with inflation being so high, the cost of food and housing and gas, it's not necessarily just about your mortgage it's about everything else and so the extra two percent that they originally had to qualify at is helping them today i think the challenge is going to come with the renewals and the people that are coming up for maturity who have never experienced or may have not experienced rates this high and what it's going to do to them today right and talk a bit about that if you can so if you are coming up for a renewal how will the stress test impact you when when you're already holding a mortgage well, for one thing, if you were with a current lender and your lender offers your renewal, chances are you won't have to repeat through the stress test. But what that also means is that you won't or won't have the opportunity to move to a different lending institution uh, or mortgage company because you won't qualify under the stress test today for the same amount of money that you have borrowed. Right. So I would imagine, uh, I know it's, it's called the stress test, but that would likely be causing a lot of stress for people. It can be, and we we have seen that, especially as prime has risen um, and people are are on the variable and now they're thinking or looking at the possibility of locking in. Um, You know, one of the things that we do tell people, everything that what goes up must come down, although it's it's looking like it's going to be, you know, a good solid 12 months or so before we're going to see any respite to prime. So that means that uh, for now, a lot of people are, are going to be looking at you know, we're trying to look at other options for them with respect to their total household spending, not just about their mortgage. 
Right. And and do you think it's possible, though, we're going to see another scenario, uh, something maybe even similar to what we might have seen in the 80s, where we saw really large interest rates, double digit interest rates and uh, people uh, forcing uh, forced in some cases to sell their homes or, or just not get into the market? Well, I think I don't, I don't think that we're going to see double digits. Uh, economists are forecasting that, you know, the, the, the reports are that that we're almost maybe potentially, however, that seems vague <laughs> at the top. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think if you can ride out the storm um, and hang tight and, you know, really consider other opportunities within your household budget to carve off a little bit of income or or to carve off a little bit of um, respite in, in spending, whether it be in food or, you know, downsizing one vehicle or looking at a whole new refinance just to get your costs down every month is something that a lot of people are looking at. All right. It's uh, interesting times for sure. And I think a lot of people paying a lot of attention to those numbers. Uh, Sharon Davis, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, one of BC's most respected labour mediators has been called in to try and break an impasse in contract negotiations for the province's paramedics. Vince Reddy has signed on for two days and it's hoped that he will find some common ground. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Troy Clifford, president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. Troy, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you very much for having me on this morning, Joe. Well, it seems like a positive step to bring in Vince Reddy. What are your hopes uh, as far as what's going to be happening for the two days that he has signed on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any time you have an opportunity for somebody like, of his stature and experience to come in and help us uh, to reach uh, what we, we we desperately need um, is, uh, is a very positive step. And the, both parties agreed that uh, he was uh, somebody that we should be looking at. He knows the paramedic issues inside out. He's been involved in, in not only our issues, but significant issues in province. So we're really looking for this as an opportunity. We had a full day yesterday and we're back at her this morning. Um, but uh, we're hopeful that uh, he'll be able to really narrow the scope of the key issues that we have on the table that really have seen no progress over the 25 days since the beginning of October when we started bargaining officially at the table. Um, we really have not seen any significant progress on those key issues. So uh, hopefully he can take a look at it, assess us, and keep us on track and see where we can go from there to avoid any uh, escalation of, of potential uh, you know, going to the membership for a strike. Not, not strike, sorry, for a uh, mandate for job action. Right. I mean, he doesn't normally get involved unless he sees some potential for movement or he sees where both sides could come together. What specifically, though, would you like to see him tackle or look at right away? Well, I think the biggest thing is the ability to, there's three key issues that we've been talking about, is that, that significant disparity in wages and benefits between us and our public safety partners, police and fire, and uh, health partners. And, you know, we're over 30% behind most of them. Uh, we're talking base paramedic full-time to, to base uh, firefighter, police officer, etc. And uh, really, that needs to be addressed, because that's really hurting our ability to recruit and retain paramedics in a competitive human resources challenge to province and country, really, for that matter. Um, and then that on-call precarious model of on, uh, $2 an hour that uh, really is just also the other side of that. 
Um, the other two areas that we're really is that service delivery. We're, we talk all the time with uh, you, and uh, we're hearing every day of these uh, delays and people getting an ambulance in their time of need. Um, and that's the service delivery challenges that we've seen that we have made some progress with the government, but we still have a long way to go to make sure that every person in BC gets an ambulance in their time of need. And then the third one is the the, the biggest, uh, you know, impacts on our, our mental health and wellness. Uh, we're having, you know, well over 30% of our members are off uh, on WCB psychological mental health PTSD injuries um, or in treatment through a critical incident stress program or managing with their general practitioners or their healthcare professionals. Um, and that's one third of our workforce almost that uh, is injured. Um, and then you see the coupled Right now, we're seeing the highest call volumes. We're leading into the flu season. Um, these RSE with all the children. It, it, this is our busiest time of year. We see more mental health and um, addiction calls over the holidays and, and uh, spikes in medical calls. And uh, it's so, you know, people are isolated. And, and we historically, Christmas and the holiday season is, is a time where we see more calls. But coupled with all the challenges we've had, there's an urgency to get it deal that will really help stabilize the ambulance service right now. Uh, you mentioned the on-call pay, and I know the province tried to address this, and they, they did put forward that new scheduled on-call model. Is that not working? Um, yeah, no, it has proven successful, and we, we worked with the government closely on that, and, and to d- reach that uh, couple months uh, temporary measures, we called them, just to buy us some time while we to allow us to make progress at the bargaining table. And unfortunately, uh, we hadn't made much uh, and still haven't. So we were, you know, those expire at the end of the month and we're, you know, we we're in a situation that that's, that puts a pressure on the system as well. But we really need to get uh, moving on this stuff and temporary measures are one thing, but they, they haven't even uh, acknowledged those temporary measures to put in place in the bargaining uh, process. So that's frustrating that uh, they're willing to do it on a temporary measure, but they won't provide paramedics with those basic uh, things that we know are working, the $12 an hour per page or pay, the on-call model from $2, which is still well below what they should be paid. So those are kind of, it's frustrating when you see that kind of thing from the Employers Association, um, that they're not acknowledging the true issues we have in the province. And if, if it's truly something that we're going to do, let's put this in place permanently so we can actually move on. Right. And so so that is set to expire in December. And then would, I guess, if, if a deal isn't reached or it isn't extended, I mean, it seems a bit strange, doesn't it, that the, the that one specific thing would go back to $2 an hour? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's frustrating, but, uh, you know, that's where we're going to have to assess things. At this point, uh, we're not seeing it being extended, but uh, that's going to be a, a real frustration and it's definitely going to impact things because it has helped. So there's no question. Uh, you mentioned as well, if a deal isn't reached, and hopefully that's not the scenario that we're going to be talking about, but if Vince Reddy isn't able to bring the two sides together, what does that look like as far as potential job action? Well, first of all, he wouldn't. Uh, it, we're a long ways from any uh, actual job action. Um, the potential services order could establish minimum standards for the province that have to be put in place because we're, we're, we're guided by the uh, essential services uh, under the Labour Code. So we've already worked through putting those measures in place so it, it establishes minimum thresholds. And we're always very cognizant of anything we do that not impact our patients because that's what we're all about. So um, we're going to have to assess what that would look like. Um, um, hopefully we don't get that way and, uh, you know, the, the government intercedes and does what they've done in other 
sector, such as nurses, or sorry, such as the doctors and or teachers and, and other NBCGU. So, you know, they managed to do the right thing for uh, most of the unions that they've been able to support right now. Um, and we're confident the government's going to do the right thing. And that they've acknowledged the challenges we've seen. So hopefully they can give that kind of direction to their bargaining agent. Right. And I was going to ask you about that because I, I know it's different when we're talking about paramedics or nurses, uh, different from, say, members of the BC GEU uh, and, and the other uh, unions that have reached deals. But does that offer up a framework or give you at least a starting point or something to reference? Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've definitely looked at those. Uh, and we're a little bit unique, like we talked about earlier, Jill, in the sense that uh, we have a, uh, we're already coming behind from a 30% gap. So it uh, puts us behind a little bit uh, from years and years of uh, uh, not making any headway in those areas. So that puts us in a little more of a different challenge. But uh, it definitely sets some templates that uh, we need to do something un- uh, extraordinary to address the uniqueness of our profession, first of all, but the uniqueness of the crisis and dire situation we're in right now. Well, we will certainly be watching to see what happens next with this. So, so, Troy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about this and about how things are going. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Joe. And we just thank everybody for the support and be safe out there. All right. That is Troy Clifford, president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. Again, veteran BC mediator Vince Reddy has joined those talks. He'll be back uh, trying to find some common ground between those two groups uh, later uh, throughout today.